We turn now to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. Reading verses 14 through 28. Hebrews seven fourteen. Hear the word of God. It is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident, for that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest, who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. For he testifieth, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh Unto God. And inasmuch as not without an oath he was made priest, for those priests were made without an oath, but this priest was made with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. And they truly were many priests, because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such a high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily, as those high priests, to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this He did once when he offered up himself. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath, which was since the law, maketh the Son who is consecrated forevermore. May God bless his sacred and very rich scriptures. Dear church family, it's inevitable in life that we often compare people, particularly in times of selection, times of voting. We do that in election times. We say, which one can best fit this position? in accord with Scripture. We 
do it also in the church when we vote for office bearers. We do it as employers when we have applicants for a job. Well, in the book of Hebrews, what the author of the Hebrews is doing, he's comparing different priests. Priesthood of Aaron. Priesthood of Melchizedek. And the priesthood of Jesus. And in the end of the day, he's voting for Jesus. And he's saying, Jesus has by far more qualifications than Aaron. And even than Melchizedek. And he's got a richer priesthood. An everlasting priesthood that's richer in duration. It's richer in activity. And it's richer in its effects. And I want to present that to you. Zeroing in on just three verses this morning. Verses 23 through 25. And particularly capitalize on his intercession. Whoever lives to make intercession for us. So let me read again 23 through 25, Hebrews 7, our text this morning. They truly were many priests. That's the priesthood of Aaron. Because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, Jesus, because he continues ever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. So our theme this morning is Christ's amazing priestly intercession. We'll look at three thoughts. It's duration, his endless life. It's activity, his ceaseless intercession. And its effect is boundless salvation. So duration, activity, and effect. Now, before we take the plunge into the depths of this text, let me say by way of introduction just a word about who the Hebrews were. They were basically a a community of believers converted out of Judaism. So out of the Levitical system of ceremonies and sacrifices. And they had come to embrace salvation as it was offered to them in the fullness of Jesus Christ. And at the beginning, they were making good progress. But adversity, persecution penetrated their ranks from those who adhered to Judaism. They were saying to the Hebrew Christians, well, you you just have a man standing behind a a pulpit bringing you words. Your religion doesn't amount to much. Come back to Judaism. We got the priests in their fanciful clothing, the bloody sacrifices. It's so much more colorful and uh, Besides, we resent you saying that Judaism is, um, is out of date now because Christ has come and 
New Covenant worship is just too simple. It doesn't have all the helps that our previous way of worshiping had. So we reject your religion. But it went further than that. They began to imprison some of the pastors. The majority of the Jews, see, were not Christians. They were not Hebrew Christians. They began to, well, if there were two or three people who applied for a job, a Jewish employer would, would, would not give it to the Christian. So Christians were suffering. The Hebrew Christians were tempted to, to give up. Tempted to go back to Old Testament Levitical rites and ceremonies. In fact, there's 96 verses, I counted them one time, in, in the book of Hebrews, in 13 chapters, that basically say, keep on going, don't look back, uh, persevere, uh, keep walking and enduring by faith. Now, the, the thrust of this book is to say, it's really a series of sermons, and what it's saying to the Hebrew Christians through these sermons, or perhaps even just one sermon, don't, don't give up. Don't turn back, because what you have now is much richer than what you had. Don't be deceived. And the point, the real point, the epistle to the Hebrews is making is simply this. This is peculiarly true in the whole area which lies at the heart of your salvation because you now have a high priest who cannot die, a high priest who intercedes for you constantly, a high priest whose blood is effectual, a high priest to whom all the other atoning sacrifices of the Old Testament era were pointing and were incomplete without him. In fact, you have the high priest to which all the Old Testament priestly systems were pointing, and he is totally effectual. He brings in total salvation. Don't go back from this rich and glorious salvation to something weak and feeble. Christ is better That's the theme of Hebrews. Christ is better. He gives you a better hope. Gives you a better promise. He's provided a better sacrifice. He gives you better rest. He has a better resurrection. Everything is infinitely superior in every conceivable way in Jesus Christ. So chapters 1 and 2. The point there is to show how Christ is greater than the angels. Chapter 3. How Christ is greater than Moses. Chapter 4. How Christ provides a better rest. Chapters 5 through 7, which embraces our text. How Christ offers a superior priesthood. Now, in the Jewish mind, that would raise the objection. But how can these things be? I mean, the priesthood was from the tribe of Levi, and Jesus didn't come from the tribe of Levi. How could the Lord Jesus, possibly usher in a better priesthood when he wasn't even a descendant of Aaron? Well, the epistle to the Hebrews answers this by saying, that's, that's a good question. Perfection, however, 
could never come by the Levitical priesthood, and God never intended that it would, because the Levitical priesthood was a temporary provision. It was designed to point to a better priest. Not to one who would be of the order of Aaron, thus from the tribe of Levi, but to one who would be of the order of Melchizedek. And who in the world is Melchizedek? Well, the author refers to Melchizedek three or four times in what we just read from Hebrews 7. And if you go back to the book of Genesis, we find that Melchizedek appears very suddenly on the scene in Abraham's life. You recall Abraham had returned from battle against the king of Sodom. And the Lord had got, gotten him the victory. And suddenly this man steps out into his life named Melchizedek. A man who appears from nowhere like a meteor in the sky on a dark night. And the Bible describes him as without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Now that doesn't mean that Melchizedek didn't have biological parents or that he never died. But it means that in terms of the biblical record, in terms of what is written about him, he had none of these things. His genealogy is not recorded. Neither is his death. So in terms of Scripture, it's as if he's a man who appears from nowhere and whose death is never recorded. And in that, you see, he's a type of Christ who himself in his divinity would be without beginning of days and who as a priest lives on forever in the power, verse 16 says, of an endless life. So Christ is not of the order of Levi and of Aaron, but he's of the order of Melchizedek. And being of that order, you see, he has qualities that supersede both Aaron and Melchizedek himself. These three qualities, which are our points this morning, duration, activity, and effect. Now, what do we mean by duration? Well, look at verse 23. And they, the priesthood of Aaron, truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. So Aaron died. We read about that in Numbers 20 in great detail. His descendants died. Eliezer, his son, died. And all the Levites died. Phinehas as well. All the generations of the Levitical priests passed away. This is an inherent deficiency in the order of Aaron, says the author to the Hebrews. And therefore, this is not a continuing abiding priesthood. Dead priests cannot represent living people before the presence of the living God in truth. This is a temporary priesthood pointing to a priest who would come, who would live forever. And so, being God, Jesus' priesthood abides forever. And now He's at the right hand of the Father, still engaging in that priesthood in His intercession, and will come again on the great day to bring His people to be with Him forever. He's fully God, fully man, the perfect mediator, the par excellence priest, God over all, blessed forever. 
always the same, the great I am, unchangeable, yesterday, today, and forever. He's the immutable one in righteousness, glorious in holiness. We have a high priest, dear child of God, who can never die and who can never fail to represent us at the right hand of the Father. In fact, being God, you see, being the God-man, He represents us with power. The Father cannot turn Him away. He can say, Father, Holy Father, I know Thou hearest me always. That's amazing. So you have a high priest in Jesus who has not one deficiency and who can never die. This is an everlasting priesthood. Yes, but the Hebrew Jews would say, He did die. We know He died. He died upon a Roman cross at Golgotha. So you Christians are deceived. Well, wait a minute. The book of Hebrews says, it's true, Jesus died physically, but his death was not a termination of his priesthood. And it was not harmful to his priesthood, his temporary death of three days where his body was in the grave, but his soul was with God, nor was it contradictory to his priesthood. Actually, it was essential to his priesthood. For it was the means by which he carried out his priesthood. His death was a critical part of his priestly work because now he can be the substitute for your sins, dear child of God, because he took those sins over and without death there's no remission of sins, the Bible says. So the sacrifice of himself, as our text calls it, is essential to your salvation. But it was just temporary. Spurgeon said it so well. He died in his priesthood and for his priesthood, but never died from his priesthood. He died in his priesthood and for his priesthood to establish salvation for his people, but never died from his priesthood because his soul went directly to the right hand of the Father. And three days later... His body arose, his body reunited with his soul, and 40 days later, he ascended on high to represent his people as the superior, the great, the glorious God-man high priest to intercede for them forever with his whole being, both God and man, in the thrones, in the throne of heaven. And so we have a high priest who lives on in the power, this is the point of verse 23, the power of an endless life. A high priest who can always say, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. So that's the first reason why Jesus is superior in his priesthood to the Aaronic priest. The priests of the order of Aaron were subject to mortality and to death, But this man, being God also, lives forever. And that has got to be a tremendous comfort for every true believer. If he died, 
and did not live on in his Godhead and in his resurrected humanity, our Christianity would have no validity at all. He'd be a Savior who could not save. He'd just be another type pointing to the Savior to come. But He is the Savior. He is the God-man. He is the ever-living high priest who intercedes to the great day of judgment. What a comfort. We have a better high priest. Don't go back. Don't go back to look for anything in the works of man. Anything that you can produce. Fly to this ever-living high priest. But secondly, our text goes on to say that he's not only superior in duration, he's also superior in activity. Look at the end of verse 25. Seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Now this is, this is, this is incredibly rich. Incredibly rich. And let me try to unpack it, but first I want to just say a word about what intercession means. Intercession, Christ's intercession, I believe is the most underrated doctrine in all of theology today. The word intercession is a legal word. It means to call upon a judge on behalf of someone else. So it's being like a, a lawyer or an attorney. When he petitions a judge on behalf of his client, seeking a, or seeking to secure a favorable verdict for his client. A word intercession similar to another Greek word, which you've heard me talk about before, parakletos, which means an advocate, someone who is appointed to speak on behalf of another. If any man sin, We have an advocate. We have a heavenly lawyer with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We have a spokesman. We have an intercessor. We have one who can speak favorably in heaven's courts, favorably and graciously in our behalf, in the presence of the Father. And so, the spiritual significance of these words can be traced all the way back to the priesthood of Aaron. You remember the priest of the Aaronic priesthood. He would meet you if you were a family at the entrance of the tabernacle. He'd take your animal and slay it and then carry that blood into the tabernacle. And once inside the tabernacle, he would plead the efficacy of that blood before the golden altar, putting some of the coals in the mixture of the sacrifice there and The smoke would go up as a symbol of prayer and he would pray for you and your family and then come out and bless you through that prayer giving, prayer hearing, prayer answering God of Israel. But what Hebrews is saying, you see, is that now he is the high priest who's not only gone into the holy place, but actually he's penetrated into the holy of holies, Hebrews 9, 24, Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself. The holy of holies, as it were, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So, Christ has entered into the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God Himself, and He appears there 
for you, dear child of God, to represent you, to make intercession for you. And here, in verse 25, the author to the Hebrews wants to underline that. So he says, For he ever lives to make intercession for them, that is, for the people of God. You could never say that. You could never say that of the Old Testament priests. They could only pray for one individual at a time or one family at a time. They could only carry out their work as long as health and strength would allow. It was just one little sacrifice and one little prayer at a time. But you see, we, if you're true believers, we have an infinite high priest, he's saying. Someone who ministers to the one and the many at the same time. The one and the many. That is to say, at the right hand of the Father, Jesus has infinite capacity to remember all his people at one moment. Millions of them. And at the same time, he remembers each one, every second, as if you were his only child. Think about that a moment. Do you understand what that means? Do you understand the greatness of this? The infinity of it? One of our little grandchildren, five years old, was talking to me just a few weeks ago. And he said, Grandpa, he said, do you know there's a number bigger than any, any number? I said, a number bigger than any number? What do you mean? He said it's called infinity. Numbers don't end. That's like Jesus priesthood. He's God. He's infinite. He's infinite in every attribute. Boys and girls, just think of it. If you are a Christian, you have Jesus praying for you at the right hand of the Father every single second of your entire life. That's amazing. That's amazing. You know, it's, it's hard. If people, are, if people are very important and they're very busy and you tell them you need something, it's hard to get their attention for very long. Isn't that true? Maybe they'll be with you a few minutes and they're gone. But this God-man is infinitely important and he gives you infinite attention to all eternity for every moment of this life and the better life to come. He's never not remembering you. You're never out of his mind. Every year, every week, every month, every, every moment, every hour, there's a continual, regular, unceasing presentation of all his people to his Father. He's the ever-living intercessor. This is love. This is amazing love. This is love that never dies. If he dwells in the heavens and he's remembering his people at any and every time, you are welcome to approach him 24-7, 365, 
There's never a time when he's sleeping or slumbering, as the Bible puts it. He's always there to hear your cries. And he's always crying on your behalf to his Father. So it's like there's a double petition going up when you pray for you. The one who's always praying for you and you praying for yourself in that particular moment. So his wounds, his prayers, his intercession are so worthy that they trump your unworthiness. And you are always welcome with him. The greatest sinner is welcome with him. He says, if any man come unto me, I will in no wise cast him out. There's nothing, nothing that he will move him to turn away from a sinner who draws near to him. What what encouragement that is for you who are not saved. You are welcome with Jesus Christ. With an intercessor who intercedes for his people at all times. He ever lives to intercede for them. And therefore, because he's God, because he's man, the end of chapter 4 puts it this way, he's the, God, the almighty God is pierced to heavens and the understanding man and sinless son of man, he's totally qualified to be this glorious eternal priest. And he says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that is freely taking hold of him to find mercy and grace to help in all your times of need. This is an amazing high priest. His activity, his ceaseless intercession ought to be one of the largest comforts in the life of a child of God that he's always there. The storms of life cannot keep him from praying for you, but he'll pray the more earnestly for you. You see, the gates of heaven are always open for, for poor sinners. Storm those gates. Bring all your needs to him and cry out when you feel the poverty of your own prayers. Lord Jesus, do thou pray for me. I trust in thee as that superior intercessor, that God-man intercessor. Plead for me when I have lost words to even plead for myself. The Lord Jesus Christ is not only the most important person in the universe, but if you're a true believer, you can say He devotes His entire resurrected, glorified life to dealing with my case, to be my attorney at the right hand of the Father. He ever lives to meet the needs of my case and my cause and plead it with His Father. Like a poet said, before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. This is tremendous. Have you ever meditated on this, dear child of God? Someone is always remembering you, that you're never forgotten. But what does he actually do then in this activity? What does it mean that he intercedes at the right hand of the Father? Well, scholars, 
Also, Reformed scholars have debated this. The Bible is not really terribly specific here. Louis Burkhoff, for example, says, based on John 17, that it's a verbal intercession every moment that the Son is always talking to the Father, always praying to the Father for his people. But John Owen, who wrote a seven-volume commentary, by the way, on uh, thousands of pages, on Hebrews, he looks at it a bit, a bit broader. He said, the real question is not whether it's always verbal or not, but the focus of his intercession is based on his sacrifice. It's based on his blood as the undergirding foundation. He pleads on the blood. So the question isn't so much the words that are spoken, but the blood on which this sacrifice, the blood in which the intercession is grounded. That's what's effectual, because that blood is the blood of the God-man whose sacrifice is of infinite value. So what Owen says is that this intercession consists at least of three parts. I'm going to give them to you simply and slowly so you get it. First of all, the presentation, the presentation of his own person before the throne of God. Look at that in uh, Hebrews 9, verse 24. For Christ is not entered into the holy place, places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself. He now appears in the presence of God for us. So the very fact that the God-man with full deity, with full humanity, and all that that humanity signifies is there in heaven, just himself being there, is already an aspect of his intercession. Then number two, as Christ appears before the throne, he represents, Owen puts it this way, his death and sacrifice for us. He represents his death and sacrifice for us. And it is that that gives power and life and efficacy to his intercession. That is to say, he presents his, his perfect merits through his bloody death to the Father. We call that his, his double obedience. He obeyed the law perfectly. He shed the infinite satisfying blood. That's why some old divines used to say he spreads out his blood before the Father in heaven. And how literally to take that is, is not edifying really to discuss. That's not the point. The point is that his blood is always there in the presence of the Father. And that that bloody atoning work that is effectual is itself intercession. So now you have his person, which is part of the intercession. You have his bloody death. Secondly, that is part of his intercession. And then thirdly, you have the verbal intercession. His words pleading for his people. Owen says it this way, with care, with love, and with compassion. 
Now, that's affirmed many places in the Bible. I just mentioned one of them to you. Revelation 5, verse 6, we're told that Christ represents his people before God, standing in the midst of the throne as a lamb that has been slain. There you have it. He is there. That's part of his intercession. But he's standing as a lamb slain. That's part of his intercession. And he speaks to his father. That's part of his intercession. So, it's like a triple power, powerful intercession. Bearing the marks and the scars of his passion, the memorials of his atonement, he legally, lawfully testifies to his father of his own satisfaction for sin. His father accepts it through the blood. It is the blood that speaks to the Father through the Son. And that's why Hebrews 12.24 says it this way, We have come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than the blood of Abel. Boys and girls, you'll remember, of course, the story of Abel, whose blood was poured out on the ground by Cain. And then God came to Cain and said, Your brother's blood cries up unto me from the ground. Your brother's blood cries unto me from the ground. If God said, that blood is bearing testimony. That blood is calling to me so loudly that I can't ignore it. And today that is surely true in other ways as well. Think, think just of the whole abortion industry. That this blood, this blood is crying up from the ground to God. A blood, figuratively speaking, that has a voice. It's as if the blood of millions of unborn babies is crying out to God. And that blood is on our hands as a nation. The blood of 60 plus million strong. But you see, here's the point. If the blood of a mortal man, a man like Abel, had the power to gain God's ear, how much more the blood of His only begotten Son in the very Holy of Holies of Heaven gains the attention, gains the love, gains the support of His Father. If the blood of a saint cries out in that way, like Abel, how much more the blood of the King of Saints, the Priest of Saints. What a voice. What a voice. The blood of Jesus must have in the courtroom of heaven. Oh, the spreading out of that blood is powerful. Infinitely powerful in the eyes of God the Father. And it's that blood that brings down through its intercessory power grace and peace and favor and blessing upon the people of God. I found one of the most beautiful statements of theology I've ever read in my life in Thomas Goodwin. This is what he says. Christ has virtually carried His blood into heaven. This blood, therefore, cries from heaven as being next to God who sits as judge there, yea, it cries in the Father's very ears. Abel's blood cried for vengeance to come down from heaven, 
But Christ's blood cries us up into heaven to sit in heavenly places with Christ Jesus and one day forever. This blood, this blood resonates with God. This blood is a critical part of the intercession of Christ. And this blood gives to us a paradise of blessing to come. And so when you think about the intercession of Christ, think about this, his person, his blood, his words, person, blood, words, those three things combined are almighty and powerful in the ears and the eyes of the Lord of Sebaoth. And that then leads us to our last thought, its effect, a boundless salvation. Please look with me at the beginning of verse 25. The beginning of verse 25. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost, uttermost, that come unto God by him. So the old Levitical system had no power to save in and of itself. It could only point to the Messiah to come. But this Messiah, this Christ, through his blood, he's able through his blood and his intercession, he's able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. The moving word here is uttermost. Uttermost. It's a strong Greek word that's difficult to translate, but this is a good translation because it leaves room for, for the fullness of Christ's bloody death and his constant intercession. His boundless salvation for the greatest of sinners. And that means at least two things. First of all, it means that he saves to the uttermost in reference to time. Reference to time. In that, that case, you see, then the text is saying this. Once Jesus has begun a good work in someone, a work of salvation, he will never take it back. He will save to the uttermost limits. He will, there will never come a day, there will never come a day, no matter what happens in your life, when the power of Christ, dear believer, is so weakened or his strength so diminished that he will not be able to keep you and uphold you and sustain you in the most difficult of life's circumstances, and through the most tragic of situations. You will never need to fear that one day you will lose your salvation, or that you'll slip through His hands and fall to your eternal ruin. No, He's able to keep you from falling. He's, he's a constant intercession, intercessor to the uttermost moment of time. And He will present you faultless one day. In that great day of exceeding joy, says Jude 24, for you are in his hand, and no man, no man shall pluck you out of his hand. He will save you to the uttermost forever. 
That's one beautiful truth. The other beautiful truth is that this word can refer not just to time, but it can have the meaning of totality, uh, completeness. He saves completely. He saves totally. He saves absolutely. He saves perfectly to the uttermost. So no one has sinned too much. No one's heart is too hard for him to conquer. There's no sin that he's not able to deliver you from. There's no powerful grip of the devil upon your life that his strong hands cannot break. There's no depth, no pit of moral debasement that you have fallen into or sin that you've committed. But that Jesus can reach down and bring you to repentance and deliver you with his powerful arm and save you from it. He saves to the uttermost. Oh, what a truth. What a comfort for big sinners like us. Maybe you say, yes, but you have no idea how much I've sinned in my life. I've I've committed various kinds of sexual immorality. I've... uh, I've, I've been a drunkard. I've been a waster. I've been a profligate. I've, I've, I've been a bad husband or a bad wife or a poor, a poor parent. I, I've got so much wrong with me. I've, I've been a liar. I've been a cheat. I, I've, I've left a tangled web of lies so many places in my life. He saves to the uttermost. He saves to the uttermost. He can save you. He's mightier than you are. He intercedes and saves and refuses to cast away one sinner who comes in repentance before Him. Oh, friend, whether you're backsliding as a believer or whether you've never been saved, abandon those sins and fall at His feet and cry out for mercy. He's willing, He's able to save to the uttermost. Oh, yes, you say, but I read in 1 Corinthians 6, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, or feminine, or abusers of themselves of mankind, or thieves, or covetous, or drunkards, or revilers, or extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And I'm half of these things, at least. I can't be saved. I'm, I'm, I'm going to hell. That's what the Bible says. Oh, no. Wait a minute. That's not the last word. That's not the last word. Paul goes on to say, And such were some of you. But now, now you are washed. Now you are justified. Now you are sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. The whole point to the Corinthians is, this is what you were. But through the bloody sacrifice of Christ and His powerful intercession... This is what you now are. You are different from that. You've been made a new creation. You've been changed. You've been saved to the uttermost. What an intercessor. He keeps those for whom he's died. You see, in his death in Calvary, that's for your justification. His intercession is for your keeping, your sanctification. He's a complete Savior. He saves completely from His side. 
And he saves you completely from your side. He saves to the uttermost. Well, what are the three applications we can draw from this? Let me give them to you in just a few minutes. Three points of application. The first is this. I hope I've shown you this morning from this text. We don't need any other priest than Jesus. No other priest than Jesus. We have the supreme, the exalted high priest who's fulfilled all the Old Testament types and shadows of priesthood. He's more than the priesthood of Aaron. He's more than the priesthood of Melchizedek. Look to Him alone. He's the only mediator. He's the only Savior. He has everything you need. Sometimes people say, well, there's nowhere else we can go but to Jesus. Well, yes, that's true. But it's more than that. He has everything you need. You don't need to go to any place else. You don't need anything in addition to Him. Anything in addition to Him is an insult to Him. He is the great high priest who saves to the utter most. Second application. Avail yourself. Avail yourself of this high priest, this advocate, this intercessor. You know, when people are in trouble or someone's taking you to court, you want a good lawyer, don't you? And you ask some people, who's a, who's a really good lawyer? That can break or make my case. Get the wrong lawyer. I'm in deep trouble. And maybe one day, many of us will have to face that. I mean, I, <laughs> I've thought about that myself when you teach certain things from this pulpit, or you write certain things in books, five years from now, people can find what I've written. They can say, well, you're, you're, you're going to jail. Well, you need a good advocate. You need a good advocate. And the whole point of Jesus is that he's the perfect advocate. And he's never lost a case. He's never lost a case. First John 2, 1. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He makes it his lifelong business to represent his people, to plead for his people, to intercede for his people. And he says, of all thou hast given me, Father, I have never lost one. He saves to the uttermost. So when the way is getting difficult and troubles seem to come at you from every side, and you wonder how you're going to make it through another day or through another week, turn to your gracious advocate priest and ask him to bring your case before God on high. Walk humbly with your God. Bow in repentance before him. Take your peculiar trials in life, trials that are breaking your heart with worry, with anxiety, and Trials that may so overwhelm you that you think you can't last another week. Or that you'll collapse if you have to bear it any longer. And just bring it all to the feet of this high priest. Who has the ear of God. And who by his very appearance. And his very blood. And his very verbal intercession. Can call down more blessing upon you. Than you have room enough to receive. He's amazing. 
He's amazing. Take it all to Him. Avail yourself of Him. Or maybe you're suffering at the hands of the devil, the accuser of the brethren. Maybe you, the devil is so real to, to you right now that you feel like he's, he's, he's like a lion going about seeking to devour you. Maybe he, maybe he says to you, you, you've sinned so much. You, you've done this and that and the other thing. You call yourself a Christian when you have thoughts like that going through your mind? When you're going to church this morning, after you said this to your children or to your spouse or to your parents uh, just yesterday, and you think you're a Christian, you're a hypocrite. There's no room for you in Jesus. No, no, no. Flee immediately to this intercessor who's at the right hand of the Father. John Bunyan said in his wonderful book, An Intercession, he said, when God's people are in deep trouble, the Son not only sits there and not only is there, but He stands there. He arises up, as it were, to plead the case of His own. To point to His own scars and to His own blood in the presence of His Father. And says, put the sins of that believer, Heavenly Father, to my account. For I have paid for them in full. They've all been dealt with. 2,000 years ago, your advocate won't lose your case. He will silence every accusation against you. What a beautiful, beautiful intercessor he is. A complete Savior so that every single person who comes to him will not be disappointed in him. Why won't you come? Why won't you go to the only one who can really give you what you need? Why are you committing the greatest sin of all? Unbelief, not surrendering to the Son of God. That's the greatest sin. That's the mother's sin. Rejecting the Son of God. He stands before you today and says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And yet he says, You will not come unto me. That you might have life. And that you might have it more abundantly. This is our great sin. He says, come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. I will give you rest. It is a serious sin to reject the offered blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Fall upon that blood. Say with the poet, when Satan tempts me to despair... And tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's it. That's the gospel. This is this blessed intercessor, this advocate who saves to the uttermost. And then finally, third application. Adore, adore this great high priest. Adore him. When Aaron died, they mourned for him for 30 days. They loved him so much. But how much more should we love the Lord Jesus Christ and adore him all our days? 
adore Him all our days. If you think of everything, dear believer, that Jesus Christ has done for you, you can't begin to thank Him enough. Can you? You can't begin to adore Him enough. You'll always come short, even in eternity. My father used to always say to us children, because mothers do so much for their children, he said, no matter what you do for your mother in your life, you can never do enough for her because you can never pay her back for everything she's done for you. That's what he'd say. Well, that's a million times more true of Jesus. Adore him. Praise him. Thank him. Bow before him. If he ever lives for you, you ever live for him out of gratitude. If he died for you, can't you at least live for him? Adore him. Worship him. Look to no other priest. Put your heart in nothing in this world. Don't put your ten stakes too deeply in this earth's soil. Live for Christ. And don't be content until you can say with Paul, for me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. Oh, may God help us. May God help us all to treasure the greatness of our great high priest. Amen. Gracious God, we ask thy benediction upon this precious text and this sermon. Forgive the shortcomings in preaching it, for Lord, we can only stammer a little of it. But do help us. Do help us to appreciate more profoundly than ever before the glorious, ongoing, never-ceasing, blessed work of our atoning, intercessory Lord of glory. Lord Jesus, comfort us with this very fact that thou dost ever live to make intercession for us. And may that alone, may that alone humble us and move us to repentance, to real repentance, where we become just a needy sinner unworthy of that love, but receiving it to the joy of our salvation, our souls. Oh God, help us to treasure the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.